Hi all, my name is Mitros Shurevsky from design team at Polemics Magazine. Today I have pleasure to share with you my meeting with Dr. Hestermeyer here at Polemics Rec. Our guest today is a professor of international and EU law at the Diplomatische Academy Wien, where he heads the law department. Before coming to the DA, Dr. Hestermeyer had quite a journey that we will talk about today. What is a career path of international lawyer and how compatible are law and politics? Hi, and thanks for coming. Dr. Hestermeyer, it's a pleasure having you today with us. A little trick that we usually do with this podcast is actually recording an introduction separately. This time, maybe we can try something new. How would you introduce yourself? Hi, and thanks for inviting me. So the, first, the usual way that academics introduce themselves is the sort of the, the academic way. You say where you've studied. In my case, that's in Germany, in Münster, and then in the US, in Berkeley. Then I did my doctorate at the Max Planck Institute in Heidelberg. They can't grant doctoral titles, so the doctoral title actually came from Hamburg because I wrote in English, and Heidelberg wouldn't really accept that very much. Then the Habilitation in Heidelberg where I worked in Heidelberg as a researcher, later the Court of Justice as I found there in Luxembourg, uh, then in London as a reader and then professor of EU and international law, and now here. To some extent, I think as a person, it's more interesting. My wife's an academic as well, as you know. So that creates all of the problems of two academics trying to juggle life with two kids. We have two kids, one five years old, one eight year old, and I'm quite sure you're going to see them around the DA because It's impossible to always perfectly time everything. And Madeleine Albright once said after an introduction, this is really embarrassing, I wouldn't tell my mom these things. Because you, academic CVs are full of successes. And they never speak of failure. And I think that's intimidating. Because you only get to see the success. Everyone has failures. One of mine was, for example, that my second book, The Habilitation, took way too long. And somehow... During that time, the possibility to go to the Court of Justice arose. So I went to the Court of Justice. And then there was the position in London, which was a really great fit. And so I went to London. And my life would have been very different if I had finished the second book on time. So what looked like a success at the core of it was also a failure of not finishing the book within any reasonable amount of time. And there's a lesson in there as well with hindsight your CV will be a successful one that makes a lot of sense. But at the moment you're living it, there will be the inevitable failure where you think, oh God, this is horrible. I'm never going to recover from that. You will recover. Thank you for such an outstanding introduction. Could you tell us a bit more about your career path and how does your journey compare with the classic path of an international lawyer, if any such exists? I think the last part is really interesting. We have international law, which in theory should be identical everywhere, but the career paths are still incredibly country-specific. If you're a UK lawyer interested in international law, what you do is you study, usually law, you then become ideally a barrister if you want to become a practitioner. The UK has two legal professions, solicitor and barrister, so the attorney profession is split in two. And the barristers are the one that would have the prestige to do international law. You try to get picked up by a barrister's chamber that does international law. You do pupillage there. You'd become admitted to the bar as a barrister. And you'd practice international law, which you've grown into through the university, ideally Oxford or Cambridge, of course, 
and then the barristers chamber that does international law. It's entirely different in other countries. So in Germany, the traditional career path for an international lawyer would be through university. You do your state exams, you then write your second, your PhD, your habilitation, you become a professor, you do international law. So very theory oriented. And my career path is just unusual to the extent that I somehow keep switching countries and that I combined, which is unusual for Germans, combined practice and theory in that I left academia to join the Court of Justice. Then I didn't go back to Germany. I went to London and I taught there and got very attached to the British system to some extent. And now I'm here in Vienna. I think one thing additionally to say about international law is it's different from other areas of law in the possibility to practice. Most areas of law are very close to practice and there's a large area of economic activity where you can make money. So you're a commercial lawyer. Every law firm has commercial lawyers. You know precisely where you can work. Tons of jobs. For international law, in terms of practice, the number of practitioners is rather limited. It's mostly British, French, to some extent American lawyers who handle the practice. People from other countries are rather limited, which is a linguistic and historic thing because of the tradition of who does cases and because of the advantage you have as a native speaker handling cases in English and French. And the International Court of Justice works in English and French. Building upon what we have just discussed, what would you say are the difference between international practitioners and those more engaged in academia? And maybe some main points of agreement or disagreement between them? I think the disagreement mostly stems from the need that practitioners have to adapt their language and thinking precisely to the rules of a court. They would bring a case to a court and courts have strict rules, binary rules of what is law and what isn't. So the International Court of Justice would go through the sources of international law. And if it isn't a source of international law, if you can't argue a source of international law, it's irrelevant. And international law is different from other areas of law in, its, in the weakness of its enforcement mechanisms to some extent. You don't have a central authority with a force to actually hold countries to what they promised and committed to legally in treaties. So reality can diverge at times from what's in the law. It's something we currently sadly see every day and where you get a lot of the frustrated comments. There's a clear act of aggression from Russia. Why doesn't anything happen? Well, lots of things happen, but what the law can do is limited if it's opposed to armed forces of a superpower. And the difference between theoretical lawyers and practical lawyers is that practical lawyers have to think of what is the argument I can make in front of a court? Theoretical lawyers can analyze the reality and can then say, well, here are non-binding documents that have larger impact, or here are the developments in reality. Do we have to remodel how we think about that? That's not something you can do in front of a court, because if you say, oh, look, those are the sources according to the statute of the ICJ, but quite frankly, that's outdated. Let's remodel all of that. The judges would just say that's interesting, but that's not what we do here. So you have to keep your arguments within the bounds of the positive law. Theoretical lawyers don't have to do that and can think about what does that mean for reality? Are other aspects more important maybe? 
And, and that's where you get a lot of the distinction. That can lead to even animosity, where both sides accuse other si the other side. Practical lawyers thinking of theoretical lawyers as being superfluous because they don't argue in front of courts. And the theoretical lawyers thinking of practical lawyers as shallow because they don't reflect sufficiently about what they do. Uh, but the reality is there's a difference and both components are vital for the system to work properly. Now, let's delve into a related topic. Why is studying international law so important for our students as future diplomats? In other words, how much are law and politics intertwined and what is their compatibility? They're very intertwined in the sense that states have incurred legal obligations. And if you look at any collection of treaties to a massive extent, there are few areas that are not regulated to some extent by treaties, by custom. So those are legal obligations. And despite what's going on in the world, states try to comply with them to a large extent. As a popular saying goes, most international law is complied with most of the time. Not all, all of the time, but most, most of the time. And you can see that even states that choose to disregard the law employ lawyers to justify their action. So the law is really important. And the, the, the intertwined action happens that politics happens to some extent in the shadow and from the baseline of the law. You have those legal obligations and within them you move politics. Sometimes you move politics as topping the law and you choose to disregard the obligations, or you take political action without thinking before what your legal obligations are. But the legal obligations, to some extent, come back in and come back to haunt you. And they're an important variable to bear in mind, which is why all governments do employ lawyers, even though in foreign ministries, they are usually not the most decisive voice. A bit of a tricky question here. To what extent did you witness international law being bent under political pressures? And would you say it was justified? I think it's a matter of degree. Because you always act within a certain space and you have certain goals. And for many states, if not most states, upholding the rules-based system is one of the goals. But sometimes you come upon requirements. Let's take a concrete example to illustrate that. The appellate body of the World Trade Organization is now defunct. That means you have no you have the possibility to appeal panel reports to the appellate body and the panel decision will not become binding. So bindingness of dispute settlement in the WTO is now up to the two parties to a dispute. That means if you're hellbent on doing something, you can appeal any dispute settlement report into the void and you don't have a binding decision against you. States that are exposed to that situation now have to start thinking, well, what does that mean for us? Uh, and it means that some states will take economic measures that you dislike and you cannot get a binding decision against them. So do you now need the possibility to act post-countermeasures, for example, without a binding decision in place? And that's a decision that the EU has taken, for example, to, to say we need to be able to act if there's a panel report that says we're right, they're wrong. And The appellate body report never happens because the appellate body no longer exists, but the panel report is appealed into the void. We need to be able to act. Otherwise, the rules-based system is threatened more. So you see there, you have a problem. 
You can't really act within the system as the system is to some extent dysfunctional, but you protect the system maybe more by acting. So is that bending the system? I guess to some extent it is. But to another extent, you really have to take a decision there. So we all, and I think the parallel to national law is not far-fetched here, we all bend the law to some extent. I don't think I do you injustice if I say I don't think you have complied with all rules of traffic all the time. I think none of us have. But that doesn't mean you disregard them all of the time. You just bend them sometimes because you think, I'm really in a hurry and I know there's no traffic camera here, so I'll go a little bit faster. But speed limit isn't entirely ineffective in that you think, oh, the speed limit is 100. I'll go a little bit faster, but I'll just go to 140. I won't really go 200 because the threat of the penalty is just too high. And that's the effect of the law that remains. Even if you think you bend it, you try not to break it. And in international law, unfortunately, there are the instances where there's a clear decision to break the law. But more often, there's a decision to bend the law that just appears like a decision to break the law to outsiders because they're subject to a different discourse. If you look at, for example, what happens in Israel and Palestine, there are tons of lawyers actually working and interpreting the rules. It's just we disagree on that interpretation at times as well. Moving on to the technicalities of international law, what are the main changes and challenges currently faced by international organizations, courts and tribunals? I think there are a whole number of challenges. I'll start with the challenges that originate in the international sphere. The Russian aggression in Ukraine is a serious conflict that leads to polarization of the international system. You can't expect the Security Council to do certain things if you're a political realist. The Middle East conflict exacerbates that. It cuts across the divisions to some extent, but it doesn't lead to any sort of reconciliation. It just is another conflict on top of the previous one. So all of that polarizes the international system. The rise of China, economic rise, rise in power, means that the decisiveness of the actors is changed, the rankings of the actors, the actions, that destabilizes the system to some extent as well, along with a relative decline of the US as a hegemonic superpower. The rise of the global south as a concept but also as a voice. We've spent decades saying the global South needs a voice. Now it has discovered it has a voice, and we don't like at times what the global South is saying. International law is changing to some extent. This um, third world theory approaches to international law, TWAIL, um, that criticizes a lot of the existing rules as remnants of an old bygone colonial order and those rules have to change. Sometimes that criticism is overdone, but sometimes that criticism is entirely fair. So we have these tremendous changes in the international system, and they lead to polarization, ineffectiveness, to the extent of mentioned that within the world trading order, the appellate body is gone, which leads to its own difficulties. And the whole system is put under the premise of national security, which with the wars going on, is getting worse and national security can kick you out, a lot, out of a lot of obligations. So a destabilization of the system from that angle. And an additional point, because we've only covered the international issues so far, the internal consensus is breaking down. International law, much like all law, relies to some extent on a consensus of the population that says, you know what, 
there's an international obligation and it's unacceptable that my government does not comply with the treaty. And that gives the political incentive to a government to comply in the future. Take the European Convention on Human Rights, a population that says, oh my God, the government has broken the European Convention, the court has ruled so, we now need to comply. That gives a different incentive to the government than a population that says, the court has said what we are doing is illegal, that's outrageous. What does that court think it is? And it's not just that in some countries we see the Dal moving, unfortunately, to that latter instance under the guise of sovereignty. It's also that we have polarization. We have internal debates in which facts are taken hostage. And we have two sides that just don't believe each other. It's, by the way, a phenomenon that you've seen in Latin America for a long time. If you read conservative newspapers in Mexico, and if you read liberal newspapers in Mexico, they're reporting about two entirely different countries. And the people who read them are formed by that. The US has now followed this broken down national consensus in which someone who's a Republican doesn't just disagree on political recipes, but disagrees entirely on the facts that constitute the basis for taking political decisions. And this is now seeping into European discourse as well. And that polarization makes it really difficult to do anything meaningful on the international level. So those are, I think, the main risks. And I'm sorry it was very long, but you see the length is determined by the number of risks out there. And unfortunately, they're increasing rather than decreasing. Thank you very much. Changing gears a bit. What role does international law play in addressing global issues such as climate change and environmental protection? And the first thing is, this is, of course, tremendously important, because while we speak of the wars, at the moment you are submitted to a war of aggression, it's hard to think of anything else. You have a gun in your face, the war determines everything. But the reality is, our lives are constantly threatened on this planet, and we're not moving in the, in the direction needed, with the speed needed to, and I'm not just saying to preserve a comfortable life, but to preserve life as such. So, this is not a national problem. It's an international problem because no state alone can act. And you see the development of the law, probably in environment, clearest. The first or the, one of the founding cases of international environmental law is the trail smelter case. In a small city in Canada, trail, there was a smelter, so an economic activity that pollutes, and it was polluting across the border into Washington state, and the US complained. Ultimately, uh, there was a panel set up, and it ruled you can't pollute across the border, you then have to pay. But look at the facts, it was cross-border action, it needed a solution between those two countries, but also it only affected those two countries. It was very limited cross-border action from today's perspective, but at that time it was still novel. So a problem that crossed the border, one country couldn't solve it on its own, and they needed to get together. In that case, they needed dispute settlement to find a solution. Climate change is that on speed. It's a problem that crosses all borders. It affects everyone, everywhere unequally, but affects everyone. Every country is to blame to some extent. Some historically share far more of the blame. 
although it's also really hard to blame countries for doing something at a time when we didn't know what was happening. But still, uh, clearly, they have more responsibility for what's going on. But these days, you can't resolve the issue without China or without India, because they're really important economic actors. So the justice argument in which you could say the West got to pollute for a long time, now China and India should have the same right, doesn't really lead to a healthy outcome anyway. It just leads to us all dying. So that's not a solution. And the solution, whatever it may be, cannot come from any single country acting. It needs to be the whole world. So that is why international law is so important. And that's also why it plays such an enormous role right now, because all of our lives have internationalized to an unprecedented event. All of you here have traveled far more than your great-grandparents in their whole lives, even though you're still young. Everyone constantly crosses borders. Look at the products in front of you. And it's not just that none of them have been produced in Austria. It's also that none of them have been produced in a single country. They have crossed borders sometimes more often than you have in your life. That means that we can't meaningfully regulate what happens in a single country. We need to cooperate as countries. And the form we do, the only form we have for doing that in a binding manner, is international law. And that's why international law is so important. And for climate change, for issues that cross all borders and can only be resolved by collective action, even more so. Before we wrap up, I would like to touch one more aspect. How has the rise of new technologies such as artificial intelligence and cyber warfare impacted the development and application of international law? There's an interesting discourse when the internet first happened. And internet law became something incredibly cool. Uh, Frank Easterbrook, a US judge, gave a presentation in Chicago and called internet law the law of the horse. said, basically, you have to wonder, is this a separate area of law? the law of the horse? Or is this just a different factual situation that you apply laws to that already exist? Is cyber law something so different that we need separate rules? Or is it just the normal thing? Something new has happened. We have a different fact pattern. We apply the rules to those facts. To some extent, it's certainly just something new, new, new facts to which we apply old rules. And you see that in the laws of war, for example. There's a handbook on cyber warfare that teaches you how the existing rules apply to cyber. The ICC prosecutor has made a statement on cyber action because in the Ukraine conflict, Russia also acted quite a bit in the cyber sphere. And he said there are no specific cyber crimes under international law, particularly in the Rome Statute. But that doesn't mean it's not relevant, because what you do in cyberspace might very well fulfill the requirements of existing international crimes. So it applies. And he's promised a note from the office of the prosecutor on the application of the law that the ICC applies to cyberspace. But it's also true that the realities of how cyberspace works are not always well captured by existing rules, because it is so different to some extent. So you also see a movement to creating new rules. And actually, that has already happened to some extent. There's a 2001 convention 
of the Council of Europe on cybercrimes, specific crimes that can happen in cyberspace, and that tells states what crimes and how to formulate the crimes, what crimes to create and how to formulate them. And uh, I've taken a note somewhere on how many states have ratified that. 45 member states of the Council of Europe and 23 non-member states have ratified that convention, so that's quite a lot for a convention that was only created in 2001. And in 2019, there was a General Assembly resolution on a new convention for countering the use of information and communication technologies for criminal purposes. So that's now in the process of being created, and that's done at the United Nations level, and will be yet another convention on specific aspects of the internet and criminal law and its application to the internet. Criminal law is quite specific and any law that the the way you can apply laws to new facts is to some extent limited because you can't draw analogies. You can do that in other areas of law, but not in criminal law. You need a specific formulation of the crime. So the first person, for example, in Germany who stole electricity wasn't convicted because crime was formulated in a way that you need to steal a thing and the courts had a problem of applying that concept to electricity. So they needed a special crime for that. And in that way, you see action, particularly in the criminal field, because you can't convict someone of a crime if it wasn't on the statute books, and that limits the scope. So particularly criminal law, new wording. Whereas for warfare, you see more focus on application of existing rules to the cybersphere. We'll wrap up with our usual bliss round of short questions. Three questions, each with several options. The choice is yours. Leave it without a comment or explain if necessary. London, Vienna, or elsewhere? Definitely at the moment, Vienna. London is incredibly expensive and to some extent closes down at night. Vienna does that too, though, compared to Madrid or Rome. But at my age, the slightly less hectic pace of Vienna compared to London is also a good thing, particularly if if you have kids. So, Vienna. Teaching professor, research fellow, or legal practice in international courts? Teaching professor with legal practice to some extent. Why the combination? I like research, no doubt. But I also like teaching, and teaching helps you understand things better because time and again you find yourself in a lesson and you think, oh God, that's actually a good question and I'll have to look it up. And there's just an issue that you haven't looked at to the extent you need it. But the same is true for practice. Trying to explain a complex international law case or trying to understand students' handwriting. What I prefer, definitely the law case. Because the handwriting, I want to be fair to students, so I always try to read it. But I also think you can't interpret fairness in a way that if someone just gives you a whole line, you can't interpret the correct answer into that. So in that conflict, I suffer a lot. The international law case is more like a puzzle where you think, oh God, this suddenly makes sense. I think I understood the basics of it. You need to understand the underlying power play. Why did a state argue that? There's history involved. It's really fascinating. Struggling with handwriting, particularly if you have the mindset of trying to do justice to the student, is horrible because you suffer. Thanks a lot for this candid discussion. It was a great time having you here at Polemics Thank you very much. And thanks to you all on the other side for listening. Make sure to follow Polemics on social media, not to miss the next episodes. This was Mitro Shurevsky. Talk to you later.